Bibles and turn to the book of Zephaniah. That's on page 1462 of the Pew Bible. We've passed the halfway point in our study of the Minor Prophets. Doing them chronologically, we're getting into the mid-7th century now. God continues to send his people, these prophets that are calling them back, calling his people back. He's a merciful God and we see that. He's calling his people back. In the uh, cold waters around Greenland, there are countless icebergs, some little and some gigantic. If you were to go there, and maybe some of you have gone there and, and looked out over those iceberg fields, you would see that, that some icebergs were going one direction and other icebergs are going another direction. Temporarily might be confused by this, but the explanation is relatively simple. The surface winds drive the smaller icebergs, whereas the bigger icebergs are driven by deep and powerful underwater currents. When we look at the circumstances maybe of our lives or or of history, sometimes we're tempted to have that same confusion. We see things going in in apparently uh, strange directions. Seems as though the wind of circumstances and the flow of history have control. But in fact, we have to recognize as as Christians that there is a deeper, more powerful current in history. And that is the sovereign and infallible purposes of God are directing history. He is sovereign and he is in control. And that is where we start in the book of Zephaniah with that type of statement. Look with me at verse 1 and 2 and 3 of of the book. The word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, son of Cushai, the son of Gediah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, during the reign of Josiah, king, son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will sweep away everything. From the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both men and animals. I will sweep away the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. The wicked will have only heaps of rubble when I cut off man from the face of the earth. As commentator Anthony Salvaggio puts it, If you've read through Zephaniah, and I encourage you to do before I preach on it, you have a tale of two days going on in Zephaniah, a day of judgment and a day of restoration. But by far the most pronounced throughout these three chapters is the coming day of judgment. There will be a day of judgment. That is day one. The Scottish preacher George Adam wrote, No hotter book lies in all of the Old Testament. And, and again, if you have read through this book, I, I hope that that rings true. This is a book of judgment. From the outset and throughout this relatively short prophecy, Zephaniah rains down judgment 
after judgment after judgment. And it's not just on his people. It's on the whole earth. It's on the whole world. That's what we just read about in verse 2. It's sweeping. It's comprehensive. It's complete. He will sweep away everything. God is sovereign in his judgments. God is sovereign in his judgments. That, That has to ring clear to you as you read this. Nowhere do we see this more clearly than in chapter 2. You can turn there with me in Zephaniah. Starting in verse 4 through the end of the chapter, it's judgment upon judgment about the, on the nations around Judah. In verse 4, Gaza will be abandoned and Escalon left in ruins. At midday, Ashdod will be emptied and Ekron uprooted. Woe to you who live by the sea, O Ketherite people. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines. I will destroy you. None will be left. In Moab and Ammon, if you continue down in verse 8, I have heard the insults of Moab and the taunts of of the Ammonites, who insult my people and made threats against their land. Therefore, as surely as I live, declares the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, surely Moab will become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a place of weeds and salt pits, a wasteland forever. The remnant of my people will plunder them and the survivors of my nation will inherit their land. This is what they will get in return for their pride for insulting and mocking the people of the Lord Almighty. The Lord will be awesome to them when he destroys all the gods of their land. The nations on every shore will worship him, everyone in his own land. There we have the wasteland, the picture of Sodom and Gomorrah, again brought up of this devastation that God will bring on the world. He uses the image of the sword against Cush in the next verse in verse 12. And you too, Cushites, will be slain by the sword. And of course, the superpower at the time, the Assyrian uh, civilization, God then turns to them and says in verse 13, he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, leaving Nineveh utterly desolate and dry as the desert. This is a precursor. This is, this is what Nahum next week is going to be talking about. Even the current superpower, Assyria, will become like a desert. These oracles against the Gentile nations are showing that Yahweh has deep, his, his deep and powerful sovereign will and his purposes throughout the world. Perhaps the, the most distilled Verse in the whole book is verse 8 of chapter 3, where we see this sovereign, sovereignty and judgment. Zephaniah says, Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the, that day, for the day I will stand up to testify. I have decided to assemble the nations, to gather the kingdoms, and pour out my wrath on them. All my fierce anger. The whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. Musician and I would say theologian Bob Coughlin commented on the judgment of God and he said this, 
The point of all this isn't that we should always be focusing on God's judgments, nor to sing about them in a cold-hearted way that minimizes their tragic consequences. The point is to magnify the greatness of God's holiness, justice, righteousness, power, mercy, kindness, grace, and his sovereignty. Are you sensing the sovereignty of God in his judgments as you read Zephaniah? God's judgments should magnify who God is. Should display his sovereignty. And God can and will judge the world. Because God is sovereign over the whole world. God's final judgments are not just relegated to the Old Testament. That thread is pulled through in the New Testament. God will someday sovereignly judge the whole world. Pastor Mark Dever says this in the Bible prophetic literature, of which Zephaniah is part, we often find prophecy about the near future mixed together with the more distant future and then the final apocalyptic future. And this is something that you have to know about the prophets when you read them. Several weeks ago, I said a very important thing to know about the prophets is Deuteronomy 28, that the prophets are are covenant adjudicators. They are covenant lawyers. They come with charges against Israel of unfaithfulness. Another thing you have to know about prophets is they do prophesy about the future. It has to do with that time, the near future, and that is mixed with the, the distant future. You always have that intermingling of the near future and the distant future in the prophets. Look at chapter 1, verses 14 and following. You see this. Here Zephaniah is prophesying about the the Babylonian captivity that will come in several decades. And he says this to Judah, The great day of the Lord is near, near in coming quickly. Listen, the cry on that day of the Lord will be bitter and shouting of the warrior there. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of the trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the corner towers. I will bring distress on the people. And they will walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like filth. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on that day of God's wrath. In the fire of his jealousy, the whole world will be consumed. For he will make a sudden end of all who live in the earth. Here he's telling them about the Babylonian captivity that is coming in just a few short decades. But can't you hear Jesus' words in Mark 13 echoing there? Jesus says, how dreadful will it be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this does not take place in winter because those days of distress will be unequaled from the beginning. When God created the world until now and never equaled again. 
Can't you hear Zephaniah's words that we just read echoing not only in Jesus' own, but in, in John's words as he was given the apocalypse? Can't you hear those? The seals being broken and the sun being turned to sackcloth and the moon to blood. Can't you hear the trumpets sounding and the earth drying up like a desert? Can't you hear the bowls of God's wrath being poured out and producing pain and anguish and thirst and darkness? People of God, please don't make the mistake of lessening the day of God's judgment. Don't make that mistake. Don't minimize his sovereign judgment. God's judgment should weigh on us. There should be a gravity right now as you are hearing the words of Zephaniah. David Wells, who wrote a a very good critique of current evangelicalism in the church, he said this, the fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is that God rests too inconsequentially upon the church. Truth, too distant. His grace, too ordinary. His judgments, too benign. I find that to be true. He is right on these indictments. We avoid books like Zephaniah, don't we? We don't want to hear sermons on Zephaniah. We just want to make his judgments, his final judgment, benign. Don't make the mistake that the people of Jerusalem did. Look at, look at verse 12 in chapter 1. It says, At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent who are like wine left on its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, either good nor bad. That's how we approach God's judgments, don't we? He's not going to do anything. Just like those people. Many today dismiss Zephaniah's words as fiction. Yet several decades after Zephaniah preached this, in 586 B.C., this all came true. Many today hear that God's sovereign judgments and think just the same. It's, it's just fiction. He's not going to do anything good or bad. They dismiss God's sovereign judgments. And that is a grave mistake. In the true sense of that word, in the true sense of that idiom, it's a grave mistake. One day God will hold the world to account. And I'm here to tell you that he won't take into account how you feel about it. Truth will not be relative. You will not be able to stand before God Almighty and say, well, that's true for you. And it will be a terrible day for those who think this is fiction. 
as you sit here today, believer and perhaps unbeliever alike, you should feel the weight of God's sovereign judgment. I'd like to encourage you to allow yourself, allow yourself to feel that weight. Because that weight actually has a purpose. And it is to prepare our hearts. Judgment, God's sovereign judgment has a purpose and it's to prepare our hearts, to change our hearts. In Peter's second letter, he's encouraging his readers to let the weight of God's judgment press down onto them, press into them. Listen to what he writes. He says in chapter 3, I want you to all recall the words of the prophets that spoke to you in the past. He's saying, remember Zephaniah. In the command given by our Lord and Savior through the apostles, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire in the earth and everything in it laid bare. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. Doesn't that sound like Zephaniah? But then Peter says this. He asks a question right after that. And I think this is what... God's sovereign judgment should do. It should cause us to ask questions like this. He says, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? Judgment is coming. A horrible, terrible judgment is coming. How should you live in reflection of that? If it's real and not just fiction, if it's not just rhetoric, Are you taking seriously God's word? Peter links God's judgment with a response. And so does Zephaniah. Look at chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3. Zephaniah says, Gather together, gather together, O shameful nation, before the appointed time arrives. And the day sweeps on like chaff before the fire, fierce anger of the Lord comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's wrath comes upon you. That's Peter, right? And then he says, how should you, how ought you should, how should you ought live now? Seek the Lord, all you humble in the land, you who do what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. The purpose is twofold. Seek righteousness. Peter goes on to say uh, in his letter, he says, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. How ought you to live? Live righteously and with humility. People, God's judgment has a purpose. God's judgment should have an effect on you. Seeking to be right before God, recognizing that you're not who you might think you are. You see, God's judgment should do some spade work in our hearts. And that we actually see that here in, in Zephaniah's prophecy. But, but you have to understand a little bit of the history. 
Zephaniah prophesied between 640 and 623 B.C. We know that because of the first verse in, in the book, during Josiah's kingship. Josiah was the grandson of Manasseh. Josiah's father was Ammon. Manasseh and Ammon were two of the most heinous kings Judah ever had and led Judah for over 50 years to sin against the Lord, to worship other gods. He took, they took Judah to spiritual lows. Listen to what Second King, how Second Kings describe it. This is Manasseh's rule. He, Manasseh, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Following the detestable practices of the nations, the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah destroyed. He also erected altars to Baal and made Asherah poles, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. In both the court's temples of the Lord, he built altars to the starry hosts. He sacrificed his own son in the fire, practiced sorcery and divination, consulted mediums and spiritualists. He, Manasseh, shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem from end to end genocide. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, that chapter ends, provoking him to anger. By the time Josiah was eight years old, when he was crowned in 640, Judah was in a deplorable spiritual state. You can imagine 55 years of this, 55 years of this, embedded into generation after generation after generation. How could they possibly pull out of it? Grandchildren were reared on human sacrifice and Baal worship and worshiping the sun and the moon. How can you pull out of something like that? What would wake these people up? Up, It's a hopeless situation. Can we at least admit that it's feeling a little like that today? A little bit. What could possibly, possibly help? God sends. Zephaniah. Not love, not a message of love, not a message of acceptance, not a message of grace and of mercy. These all have their time and place. It's not wrong. But these people needed judgment. They needed to hear who God really was. God sent Zephaniah to preach white, hot judgment. And we know from history, that in the year 622, 18 years after Josiah became king, after hearing years of Zephaniah's judgment prophecy, years of his prophecy, something began to happen in Josiah's heart. Something began to change. We see that in Second Kings 22 when Josiah says, you know what, let's take some money and let's, you know that temple up there to Yahweh? 
why don't we start to renovate that a little bit? His heart begins to turn back. And Zephaniah preached judgment. Continued to preach judgment. And you know what happened in that renovation? They found a book. And it was the book of the law. Moses' first five books. They found it. It had been lost in the temple. Put away by Manasseh, I'm sure. Just hide this thing. And they found it. And they came running to Josiah. And Josiah said, well, my goodness, read it to me. And the high priest begins to read through God's law. And I'm, sur- I'm sure Zephaniah's judgment preaching is in his back, back of his mind. And he begins to hear how far they have drifted. And you know what Josiah does? He doesn't say, just put that book back. He doesn't say, let's, let's forget about what we just heard. He tears his clothes. It's a sign of, of sorrow and repentance. He tears his clothes, the royal robes. And 2 Kings 21.11 says that he cried out, Great is the Lord's anger against us. Zephaniah preached judgment. In 2 Kings 23, the very next chapter, we see something amazing happen. This nation who had been steeped in sin comes back to the Lord. There's a a spiritual revival that is unparalleled in the Bible. Josiah tore down the Asherah poles and the Baal altars, and and he ground them into dust, it says, he dismantled the, the temple prostitute uh, quarters. It says he took the priests and he slaughtered them, the pagan priests. He banned sun and moon worship. He dismantled the shrines where men and women and children were sacrificed. Most importantly, though, he humbled the nation before God. He called them together and he read the law to them. And he led his nation back to God. He led them to renew their covenant with God. 2 Kings 23:25 says neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did with all his heart and with all his mind and with all his strength sounds familiar doesn't it What we see in 2 Kings 23 is no less than the single greatest spiritual revival in the history of Israel and it was accomplished through preaching judgment Yes, mercy and grace do turn people's hearts. They do. But I think what we have lost is so does judgment. We see this in the great reformation of the 16th century with Martin Luther, don't we? He felt God's judgment so much that he spent six hours in the confessional 
a day. Because he, he realized the seriousness with which God takes sin. The seriousness with which he took God's judgment gave him the courage, the boldness to lead that reformation, to lead that spiritual revival. His 92nd thesis that he tacked on the door in Wittenberg read, Away then with all those prophets who say peace, peace, when there is no peace. We see judgment used mightily in the first great awakening, don't we? Under Jonathan Edwards. It wasn't grace and mercy that people heard in 1740. Listen to Jonathan Edwards, what he told the people over and over again through his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. O sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit full of the fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of God, whose wrath is provoked and incensed to such a degree as against many of the damned of hell. You hang by a a slender thread, he said. And God's judgment prepares your heart and my heart for the gospel too. The preaching of Zephaniah should cause you today to take stock in who you are and how you're living. Judgment is coming. There will be a day. And it will be horrible. Where do you take shelter from a storm like that? Where do you take shelter? You take shelter in day two of Zephaniah's prophecy. Day two. Look with me at chapter three, verses 14 and following. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Look at verse 20. At that time I will gather you. At that time I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among the peoples of the earth. And I will restore your fortunes before your very eyes. What we see here is a picture of restoration. That's day two, is restoration. Here God tells his people that yes, they are going to suffer exile in Babylon and it will be horrible, but he is going to bring them back. That's the promise that he's giving them. A time in the future when he will take away the punishment. He will save them from their enemies. He will remove fear of judgment from their minds. Place his presence with them forever. And I love the the image. He will bring them home. In verse 20. Home. 
back to Jerusalem. I love what Tim Keller says in his book, The Prodigal God. He says, home is not so much a place, but a relationship. A place where you are loved and accepted. And that's the picture that Zephaniah is putting forth. Jews are coming back, but not so much into a, to a place. Yes, a place, Jerusalem, but also back into a relationship. I think that's how we see the gospel in the, in the prophecy of Zephaniah. Where is the shelter of this sure and terrible judgment coming? How do we know that we have returned from spiritual exile? It's in the relationship with Jesus Christ. That's home. That's salvation. That's being saved from something. And that's what Jesus came to accomplish. That's his life, death, and resurrection in a nutshell. His extending a hand to you and saying, the relationship with me, you're safe. That's where shelter is. And he accomplished it through living his perfect life. He lived the life that you can never live, perfectly humble and perfectly righteous, just like Zephaniah says in chapter 2, verse 3. He accomplished that through his substitutionary death. He humbled himself and took the punishment for our sins that we deserve. That's Zephaniah 3.15. He does this through his powerful resurrection, saving us from our enemy, sin and death. If you have, are sitting here and you have trusted Jesus, his work on the cross, his life, if you've trusted that, you're sheltered from God's anger. If you trusted Jesus' work and not your own, the Lord is with you. You don't have anything to fear. If you've trusted Jesus' work and not your own, he takes great delight in you. And he loves you. If you've trusted Jesus' work and not your own, you've entered into a relationship with Jesus and your home. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Spirit, I pray that you apply this word to our hearts and change us. In Jesus' name, amen.